Conversations. Good day, this is Med Conversations. This is Darvo here. And I'm back and today we're going to be talking about aortic stenosis. Do you want to start with a case back? Yeah, so I'll just introduce you to Minju, who's a 76-year-old man who presents to his GP for just a repeat script and the very thorough GP does a full cardiac exam and hears a systolic murmur. What are your differentials, listeners? Pausing. Let them answer. Let them answer. My differentials in a systolic murmur, so I break it down into first valvular issues. So you've got your left-sided valvular issues and your right-sided valvular issues. Mm-hmm. So on the left side, and these are murmurs that are louder when you exhale mm. with expiration. Do you remember Ryle? No. Right-sided murmurs are louder on inspiration. That's the R and the I. And the L and the E of Ryle, left-sided murmurs are louder on expiration. I prefer to think of the physiology behind <laughs> what's going on. Nah. Uh, so you've got on the left side with... Uh, louder and expiration, you've got aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. And then on the right side, you've got tricuspid regurgitation and pulmonary stenosis, and these are louder on inspiration. But then you've got a few other murmurs as well that are worth considering. So you've got a Hockham murmur or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, and that's a murmur that's louder on Valsalva. Please refer to our Hockham podcast for more information. You've got aortic sclerosis, which is similar to aortic stenosis. The main difference is that it doesn't radiate to the carotid, but we'll talk about that again a little bit later. You've got a flow murmur, which is a structurally normal heart, but just has a murmur for whatever reason. Sometimes you particularly see that if someone's anemic or they've got hypothyroidism for whatever reasons, they're hyperdynamic. Hmm, or if they're unwell. And then you've got uh, um, some sub or supraaortic valvular stenosis as well. But the main ones are those valvular lesions. So... AS and MR on the left, and TR and PS on the right. Good. So this GP didn't really think through the various options and instead just ordered a TTE, a transthoracic echocardiogram, and referred to your cardiology clinic. Um, The patient had no symptoms, and in his letter he said that the conclusion of the TTE stated the patient had severe aortic stenosis. Get that man a valvular replacement now. The implication, aren't you? Perhaps. I don't know. All right, so let's talk about epidemiology for a second. So is this a common issue? Yes, aortic stenosis is very, very common. Mm. Um, It's caused by a few different things. The most common cause worldwide is actually rheumatic heart disease. Um, In cases of rheumatic valve disease, usually it's associated with aortic regurgitation as well and mitral valve disease. In the Western world, though, it tends to be from calcific disease. This can either be of a normal tricuspid aortic valve, as it's supposed to be, or a congenital bicuspid valve. So kind of three causes, rheumatic valve disease, calcified valves, or congenital bicuspid valve, with a bit of overlap in those last two. So as we said, really, really common, 30% of people older than 65 years exhibit aortic valve sclerosis, which is the precursor to aortic stenosis and 2% um, exhibit frank stenosis but that's a, that's a lot of people if you consider everyone over 65 mm, not even those ones who are just called frank so is this a disease of men or women <laughs> let's just move on <laughs> did you make a joke i made a joke oh, good one. about frank stenosis <laughs> anyway it didn't work um no 80 percent of patients who have symptomatic valvular as are male yeah and they're called frank 
All right, so Minju has a calcific aortic stenosis. So what causes that? You tell me. You're well, on the podcast. It's basically very, very similar to the causes of atherosclerosis, just normal vascular atherosclerosis. So you'll remember the endothelial dysfunction, lipid accumulation, activation of inflammatory cells and cytokine release, and um, the upper upregulation of lots of the different signaling pathways. Very presumptuous of you. I don't remember any of those things. Well, now I've told you. So that's what it's involved. And essentially, eventually, the the myofibroblasts in the valve differentiate into osteoblasts. That's crazy. Osteoblasts build bone. So they're they're basically depositing uh, something called calcium hydroxyapatite, which is the stuff that makes teeth, I think. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) Um, onto the valve. All right, cool. So that's the micro level that we're talking about. This is how you build up calcium. But why is that a why is that an issue on a larger physiological scale? All right. So so obviously the aortic valve is where the blood goes from the left ventricle into the outside world or into the again aorta. Presumptuous. Is it obvious? I don't think it's obvious. But go on. Um, and and so. So when the when there's stenosis, that's an outflow obstruction. So you would have heard of left ventricular outflow obstruction, and so the heart has to pump against this. So it needs to get stronger. So there's concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, mm. it builds up its muscles. Mm. But that's good, right? Stronger heart, better it is. Yeah, it's like, so it's like training for the heart. So really, that person has a better heart than a normal person. Well, at first, it is an adaptive mechanism. Right. Okay. Um, but then it's kind of like those bodybuilders who are really big, but they're not actually that strong. Have you thought through this analogy properly? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to abort here. Um, but anyway, so so big, big hypertrophy left ventricle or left ventricular wall. Um, and, and at first there's no LV dilatation or anything like that. But you've got this big, muscly left ventricle and it can't relax properly. Mm-hmm. Um, like a bodybuilder getting ready for a Just big... Stop. Just stop. <laughs> um, yeah, so you get diastolic dysfunction. So the, the hypertrophied left ventricular wall can't relax enough to allow proper filling. It follows from that that the stroke volume can also decrease and ultimately systolic dysfunction occurs as well. So I think there's some fibrosis and stuff at the end where that's how you ultimately even get systolic dysfunction where you can't even pump out the small amount of blood that's going into the heart. That's mm. when you're in real trouble. So we talked a lot there. So to summarize, you got calcium on the valve. That creates a pressure gradient. Then the heart has to work really hard to overcome that pressure. And then that cause it to high, causes it to hypertrophy, which then leads to diastolic dysfunction. It's no longer able to relax properly. And then ultimately, the last stage is when you get systolic dysfunction. All right, so let's cycle back into the real world. So Minju, sitting there in the waiting room, he is not symptomatic from his severe AS. But then, this is aortic stenosis clinic, by the way. So we know everyone has aortic stenosis. But there's a guy next door to him. In the aortic stenosis waiting room. Yeah. His name is Mario, and he's 85. And he's really symptomatic. So tell me, Beck, what are the symptoms of aortic stenosis? So I've been told by our loyal fans that they like to have a bit of a period of thinking time. So you've had your thinking time, so now I'll tell you. Um, So there's actually a really long asymptomatic period, but when symptoms do arise, they're usually exertional syncope, exertional angina, and dyspnea. 
So we'll talk about each of those in turn, but the mnemonic there is sad. Syncopia, angina, dyspnea. I had a fantastic case the other day where it was referred to me as a cardiology resident. This lady has syncope, could be arrhythmia, we don't know what's going on. Uh, She just needs to come into some telemetry. Had a chat to her and she just gave this great story of just walking up the hill and then she had some chest pain, she felt shortness of breath and next thing she knew she was surrounded by paramedics. And then I asked her if this had ever happened before. She said she'd never passed out before but she'd had those same symptoms leading up to it and then she just kind of stopped. Mm, I'm pretty syncope, yeah. And so before, like, listening to her, I was like, this has got to be aortic stenosis. And I was right. Amazing. What a doctor, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> yeah, so so um, so let's talk a little bit about that angina. How does that work? Why would you get angina when you've got a problem with the valve? Well, you've got this muscly heart, right? And it takes a lot of oxygen. It's demanding. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So there's there's increased oxygen requirements. So mm. even in the absence of any coronary artery disease, you can get angina. Obviously, if there is coronary artery disease, it's even worse. What about the dyspnea? Can you explain that? Uh, so that's back pressure. So you've got increased uh, pulmonary capillary pressure because you've got diastolic pressure that flows back into the lungs and causes breathlessness. Mm. So some of the late symptoms are left ventricular failure. So we said you got this late systolic dysfunction. So then they get the all the symptoms of systolic dysfunction. Systolic dysfunction. <laughs> Dystolic. <laughs> uh, orthopnea, PND, pulmonary edema, all that jazz. You can also get severe pulmonary hypertension, which so, can lead to right ventricular failure. So that pressure can track all the way back to the other side of the heart. Mm. So peripheral edema and hepatomegaly are the symptoms there. Mm. So the next thing I usually do after history is I examine the patient. Um, the aortic stenosis exam is a good one because not only is it really critical in the diagnosis, but it can actually evaluate the severity of the aortic stenosis really well, which can guide you as to whether this person might need urgent therapy or not. Yeah. So so let's start off with the OBS. Um, generally, observations. Observations. Generally, most of them will be unremarkable, but a late finding is that there may be a, a low systolic blood pressure and a narrow pulse pressure. So the pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and diastolic pressures. And if you think about it, that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? So the aortic valve isn't opening enough to let much in, so there's not actually much difference between the high-pressure systolic pressure mm. and the diastolic. Mm. Then so we move on to... The pulse. The pulse. And this is its eponymous name time. No, wait, this no, it's not eponymous it's, it's at not all. Not so there's this guy called Parvis, <laughs> and his mate Tardis. <laughs> Pulsus Parvis et Tardis. What I meant to say was wanky name time, so Latin name time. Uh, it means slow rising pulse in Latin. And that's uh, basically, if you're really good and experienced, that's what you can feel in the carotid pulse and severe aortic stenosis. Correlates with uh, your understanding of the physiology, of course, because the blood is slowly getting squeezed down. So rather than going bang, here's the pulse. It's like slowly coming out. Yeah. So where's the best place to feel that pulse? Carotid pulse always. Yeah. And and what else might you feel over the carotid there? You may feel a carotid thrill, uh, left greater than right. Uh, in the neck while you're there, you'd also examine the uh, JVP, the jugulus venous pressure. And uh, you get an accentuated A wave in that JVP. Don't worry too much about that. Basically, you get an elevated JVP if they're in heart failure like you always do. Yeah. So then the next step is uh, having a feel of the chest, precordial palpation. So what are you going to feel there? So we keep talking about this muscly LV or left ventricle 
Um, so that means that there's usually a laterally displaced apex speed or left ventricular impulse. Mm-hmm. You may be able to palpate the S4. So S4 refers to the sound, but it has a physical manifestation. Um, S4 is something that you get when a blood hits a stiff ventricle, like you have in a hypertrophied ventricle in AS. You may also get a systolic thrill. So that's uh, at the base of the heart to the right of the sternum when leaning forward. All of, all of this stuff, it takes a lot of experience to pick up them. Yeah, just a, a tip for young players. Um, like us. <laughs> well, I, yeah. You're still a young player. They're still a young player. But, but the heart is sort of upside down. So when we say the base, we mean the top bit. All right, so now onto the money shot part of the examination. I have to confess, when I was uh, listening to that story of the lady I talked to before, I went straight for the for the auscultation. Yeah, everybody does. Mm. Um, but but yeah, so so what you can hear when you do get to that part, um, first you listen for the heart sound. So there's S one. Usually it's normal, but you can have an ejection click, particularly mm. in bicuspid aortic valves. So. We've mentioned this a couple of times, but that's a congenital anomaly where instead of the usual three cusps to the valve, there's only two, mm. and that predisposes people to aortic stenosis, which is why it's coming up in this podcast. And you've been quizzed on that before, haven't you? Consultants have said, I have. how I dare have. you not tell me whether there's a click or not? Yeah, I, look, I've never actually heard an ejection click, but I have heard someone tell me off for not saying that there was not one. <laughs> um, so, so S1, usually normal, but can have an ejection click. S2 tends to be soft. So... S2 is made up of A2 and P2. What's A2? So that's the aortic valve closing. And P2? The pulmonary valve closing. Yeah, so so normally, which happens first? So normally the aortic um, valve closes first, and I think of this as being because there's a higher pressure in the aortic or it slams that valve shut um, sooner than the pulmonary valve because the pulmonary uh, artery pressures aren't quite as high. Mm. And then normally... Um, when patients breathe in, mm. what happens? So that means your RV has more blood in it. So there's going to be more blood to go through that pulmonary valve. And so it's going to close later. So basically it's accentuated. The splitting is accentuated. And often for me, I can't actually hear the splitting unless the patient is inspiring. Mm. Me either. So, so in aortic stenosis... There's splitting, but it happens the other way around. Instead of there being that physiological A2 and then P2, um, A2 actually happens after P2. Mm. And so on inspiration, we said that P2 happens later. Mm. Now on inspiration, when P2 happens later, it meets up and joins A2. So when you breathe, when the patient breathes in, you lose the splitting. Mm. And so, so the reason for that is because the blood is slowly going through this aortic valve because it's so tight. Mm. That's why it's delayed. And that's also why it's soft. So just to just to summarise, there was a lot there, probably a little bit beyond medical student level. But in terms of heart sounds, S1 is usually normal. S2 is soft. That's actually one of the best things to pick up and quite easy for even inexperienced clinicians to pick up. Um, and then more trickily, there is a sometimes paradoxical splitting where there's a de- delayed um, A2 compared to P2. Mm. You could also hear an extra added heart sound, S4, or an S4 gallop. Yep. So this is this is really tricky to differentiate between a split heart sound and S4, but apparently it's there. Um, and then we, we skipped S3 because S3 is something you get when you've got a really dilated ventricle, which is not obviously the case in aortic stenosis. And S4 is the sound that you get when blood is hitting a stiff ventricle. 
And that's the way you remember it. It sounds like a stiff wall, a stiff wall, a stiff wall. So the S4 happens just before S1. All right, now you've all been waiting for us to talk about this, I know, with bated breath, or you've turned off the podcast, one or the other. <laughs> um, but ejection systolic murmur. So that's that's what I was wanting to hear on that lady's chest. Yeah. And uh, that's loudest in the aortic area, which is the second right intercostal space. And it should radiate equally to both carotids. So if it, if it doesn't radiate, then you've got aortic sclerosis on your hands rather than stenosis. Mm. And if it only radiates to one carotid, then you might just have a carotid brewery from carotid stenosis. Mm. And so really importantly in this um, ejection systolic murmur, it has a mid to late peak intensity. So it's a little bit delayed. And when I was a young medical student, I got I got shown how to hear an injection systolic murmur by someone telling me to put my stethoscope bell on my hand and doing like a Nike tick kind of on your hand. And that's sort of almost exactly what it sounds like. Or you can use the internet and go to a website called Blaufus and you can listen to all of them. B-L-A-U-F-U-S-S has some really good um, cardiac auscultation audio files. Good one. All right, so what are the three most sensitive findings on examination? So the, these are the things that most people with aortic stenosis are going to have, right? So slow-rising carotid pulse, so parvus etatus, uh, mid to late peak intensity murmur, and reduced intensity of the second heart sound. So they're the three money shots to look out for. Boom. All right, what about the ECG? So we'll skip over this pretty quickly, but basically, as you can imagine, big heart, you get um, left ventricular hypertrophy. All right, so you're the intern presenting Maria's case to a consultant. What happens next? So you've pulled off your flawless little description of the signs and symptoms, but when you get to the echo, you don't really know what you need to tell them. So you know what's in the conclusion, that it's severe aortic stenosis, but there's lots of numbers throughout the report. What do you need to know? What's important here? So there's three things I look for, Count it three things. So valve area, less than one centimetre. And that's that's severe aortic stenosis. So that's often the last thing to go. But that's a good one to look at. Um, and then mean aortic valve pressure gradient. So that's the pressure acro- across that tight valve when it's greater than 40 millimetres of mercury. That's severe. Um, and then the third one is the jet velocity or the transvalvular uh, aortic velocity. So how fast that blood is shooting through that. And often that's valve. called Vmax. Vmax, yeah. So when then that's greater than 4 meters per second that's severe mm. so so valve area less than one centimeter mean aortic valve pressure gradient greater than 40 millimeters and vmax greater than four meters so other my, things other things you, you might see on the report are mentions of what the leaves actually leaflets actually look like so are they thickened are they calcified are they bicuspid mm. what other tests might you do back apart from the tte or the transthoracic echo Well, we mentioned earlier that patients often have exertional symptoms, but a lot of people don't really exert themselves very much. Um, So they might have those symptoms and think that they're actually asymptomatic. Mm. So uh, stress tests, so actually make them exert themselves. Mm. Um, So don't do that in in patients who have symptoms, just patients who are severe and asymptomatic. And uh, I believe some people get angiography. Is that just because cardiologists want to make money or is there an indication for it? Yeah, so if the clinical findings and the findings on the echocardiogram don't add up, then you do a, a heart cath. Or if there's a chance that the outflow obstruction isn't actually at the level of the valve but is above or below it. Or if um, if the patient is having a workup for another procedure called a TAVI or a trans 
um, femoral aortic valve insertion. Mm. All right. So apart from the symptoms that you obviously get from aortic stenosis, why else is it an issue? There's some other complications we should be aware of, right? Yeah, so there's atrial fibrillation. Mm. So that's just because the heart's all messed up structurally and then that screws it up electrically as well, very common. Um, so endocarditis is a bit dubious whether there's actually a link here. Um, the guidelines now say that you don't need any um, antibiotic prophylaxis for dental procedures, but there may still be an increased risk. Mm. The last one is, or second last one, is bleeding. So essentially the, the, the blood is being squeezed through this narrow area um, and mechanically disrupting some of the components of the blood. So we call it almost like an acquired von Willebrand syndrome um, because those von Willebrand factors are uh, damaged when they get squeezed through the narrow valve. Mm. So you might have heard of Hady syndrome. Mm, I'm sure everyone, I'm sure they have, but consultants love this. This is like classic ward round fodder. They love quizzing you on this. Good opportunity to look smart. I think you once had a bunch of medical students that had been quizzed by a consultant and you asked them what the symptoms of AS were and they couldn't tell you the syncope, angina, dyspnea. So Hades syndrome may, may not actually exist. Um, again, it's quite controversial, but that's basically GI bleeding in the setting of what I just talked about and, and some angiodysplasia in the gut. Um, so so one, one piece of evidence to support the fact that this may exist is that after an aortic valve replacement, patients who were getting GI bleeding when they had aortic stenosis don't get GI bleeding anymore in, in many cases. Mm, it's all circumstantial. <laughs> Another complication, the most severe one, is arrhythmia. Um, oh, sorry, is sudden death, which is possibly from arrhythmia. Um, usually sudden death only occurs in patients who have been getting symptoms. It's not usually a surprise, although it can be in less than 1% of patients who have aortic stenosis. Mm. Okay. All right, let's go back to Minju and Mario. So right. Mario has, is the 85-year-old with symptomatic severe AS, and Minju is the 76-year-old with asymptomatic severe AS. What are their respective prognoses? All right, so... So Minju, who doesn't have any symptoms, um, is probably in the, the long asymptomatic period we mentioned earlier where his life expectancy is actually pretty similar to age-matched controls who don't have aortic stenosis mm. at all. So no symptoms, no problem. I love this. It's like we forget the beautiful machinery of the body is some of the best tests out there. <laughs> profound, isn't it? All right. So, so what about Mario? So he's got angina and syncope. How long until he's likely to he's die? He's on death's door. Three years. Three years away from death's door. Mm. Yeah, and and after the onset of dyspnea, there's two usually years. about two years. After the onset of congestive heart failure, one and a half to two years. And what about after the incidence of sudden death? Um, after the incidence of sudden death, most patients Duh. have been dead. <laughs> so the annual incidence of that is 8 to 34%. I was stunned when I learned that. I had no idea that it was so high. Mm. It's really high. Mm. It's not even something I really think about when someone has a out-of-hospital arrest, but probably should. All right. So let's um, go on to treatment. Is this is this uh, something that, you know, a beta blocker can fix? No, not really. So, so medically, there's only limited things you can do. You want to treat the hypertension. You don't want to double load the left ventricle that's already working so hard. Mm. Um, and, and also manage other cardiovascular risk factors. We mentioned the risk of coronary artery disease in combination with aortic stenosis, and it's not pretty, so try and avoid that. Mm. 
In patients who have severe aortic stenosis, even if they're asymptomatic, you should actually advise them to avoid exertion and avoid dehydration or hypovolemia, which um, could reduce the cardiac output. So for this reason, fruzamide is probably not a good idea in these patients. Mm. This really is the, the realm of interventionists and, and surgeons, though. Mm. Um, so it's a good opportunity to make a huge difference to someone's life. So let's talk about surgical options first. So the indications for an aortic valve replacement. So severe aortic stenosis, but not on its own. Severe AS plus symptoms or severe AS plus systolic dysfunction. So that's an injection fraction of less than 50%. Yeah. And then there's some other kind of more minor indications as well, but that's the main one. That's the one you need to remember. Someone who has severe AS and symptoms needs their valve replaced urgently, otherwise they'll... They'll probably die in the next few years. But mm. otherwise, we sometimes do it when they're having cardiothoracic surgery for other reasons or like CAGs or something. And then uh, if they've got a bi- bicuspid valve and an aneurysmal aortic root dilatation, then they do it as well. But that's kind of less relevant, particularly if you're a medical student. You need to know if there's severe AS plus symptoms, you need to do something about it. Mm. Okay, there are some other options, though. Um, we'll just kind of skim over these. They're not... Um, too important to know in detail. Um, you can do a percutaneous a- aortic balloon valvuloplasty, so basically just pump it up. Um, it's not a long-term solution. Often it's just used as a bridge to surgery in children or before somebody has a TAVI. So a TAVI is a transcatheter aortic valve insertion. I've been seeing a lot of these in the last few weeks in the pre-admissions clinic in cardiology. <laughs> and basically the, the people who come into those clinics are usually a little bit old and crumbly. So these are the patients who... Um, who need to have something done with their aortic valve because they have severe and symptomatic aortic stenosis, but their operative risk is prohibitive. So they're probably going to die on the table, um, but they're in that window period where they're they're not well enough to have the operation, but they are well enough that we think they're going to live about at least a year after they get this valve fixed in another way. And that's actually been shown uh, in trials that the, the mortality is greater. It's not just something we presume because they, they don't look too well. It's been proven. Mm. So so we don't know a lot about TAVIs at this stage. We don't know how long they last, but it seems to be a really good solution. It's a minimally invasive surgery. It's quite, quite similar um, from the patient's point of view, quite similar to an angiogram where they, they basically insert a wire into the groin and then they come out the other end with a new valve. It's crazy. And the indications are probably spreading slowly. So now they're kind of moving into the territory of intermediate risk patients as well. Mm. Okay, so what happened to our, our little people? So this is, a, this is a nice condition. It's something we can really make a big difference to people. So Mario got his tabby and went home with a huge improvement in symptoms and um, had a good rest of his life. And uh, Minju was sent home with... With nothing. With nothing, <laughs> but he's fine. He's asymptomatic. He continued to be asymptomatic for a while, but then eventually developed symptoms and he's otherwise well, so he had his valve surgically corrected. Great. Okay, so let's talk about some take-home points. Number one, patients with aortic stenosis have an ejection systolic murmur. Number two, they tend to be asymptomatic for a long period, during which time you don't need to do anything. But once they become symptomatic, the symptoms are SAD, S-A-D, syncope, angina, both of which tend to be exertional, and dyspnea. Um, Once they're symptomatic, you need to intervene because they have a life expectancy of about three years from the onset of symptoms. Um, The management options are surgical aortic valve replacement or TAVI. 
Nice one. Thank you very much, Beck. Important topic. Done well. Thank you. Bye.